This episode of Market Foolery is brought to you by Green Chef. Start the new year right by eating healthy and saving money. Green Chef is an organic meal kit delivery service that brings fresh ingredients and easy recipes right to your doorstep. Go to greenchef.com/fool to get $50 off today. It's Thursday, January 5th. Welcome to Market Foolery. I'm Chris Hell joining me in studio today from Motley Fool, Supernova, and Rule Breakers, Aaron Bush. Happy Thursday. Happy Thursday. Thanks for being here. Yeah, happy to be here. We got a bunch to get to today. It's not earnings season. And and longtime listeners know when it's like the week or two before earnings season, we're waiting for the news fairy to show up because oh, yeah. there's just not much going on. Earnings season kicks off next week. The news fairy did show up. We're also going to dip into the full mailbag. Let me start with the retail story by with a little bit of context, which is that a month ago, in the wake of Black Friday and Cyber Monday, when there was a big rush, certainly by, I don't want to say everyone in the financial media, but certainly some in the financial media, to start giving out report cards right then and there for how individual companies were doing in the holiday season. On this show, we specifically said, you know what? We're, we're, this is one data point. We're not going to know how retailers did until January. Mm-hmm. Now it's January. Now we're getting some of the results. And what we're seeing today is pretty darn ugly. Uh, Macy's announced it is laying off 10,000 employees. They're going to be closing dozens of stores. Kohl's cut their earnings guidance, they cut their gross margin guidance. After their same store sales over the holidays fell two percent, and in terms of the stocks, Macy's down fourteen percent this morning. Kohl's down nineteen percent. Ouch! <laughs> I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't have predicted this much red. I'm not saying I was going to throw a parade for either one of these. Yeah. But this is, I mean, this is so much worse than I would have guessed. Yeah, it really is. And what's interesting is that both of these companies are realizing that they have. To quickly move to building an online presence. And right now, both of those companies are doing just that. Both of them have actually posted pretty good numbers for what their online stores are doing. But the problem is, people are just leaving the physical stores at a much faster pace than they're going to the online stores. So, yeah, it's really awful for Macy's, it's awful for Kohl's, but. I feel like this is a story that is a little bigger than that, too. The gross margin story that we're seeing at Kohl's does not surprise me when you consider the data that came out in late December about the discounting that was going on. And there were literally calendars that some analysts were producing, some media people were producing, in terms of the closer you got to Christmas, the more items were being discounted. So maybe that. In and of itself is, you know, should not be a surprise to anyone, but the overall sales numbers that that does surprise me a little bit. Yeah, and just to kind of take this big picture a little bit, because I really think this is bigger than just Macy's or Kohl's. Um, I, I ran across this really interesting chart on Twitter a couple of days ago, and it was pointing out that at the end of 2016, Amazon had a market value of about $350 billion, which is larger than Walmart, Target, Best Buy, and pretty much all of the big box retailers put together. Um, I know. And so, it's one of those things that like, we kind of talk about this a lot, but then you just hit a tipping point um, to where um, the game really has changed, and the effect that it has on the laggards just becomes accelerated. Um, and I think it's important to emphasize that this isn't a new story in any way whatsoever. If you look at just the past 10 years, 
pretty much every single big physical store retailer, um, their stock is down. Pretty much all of them. Um, and so it's just kind of like a year by year thing of just this gets worse and worse and worse. Um, I mean, obviously, Macy's and Kohl's, Best Buy, they're down about half from where they were in 2006. And so, if people were thinking that this would just suddenly go in the opposite direction, there has to be some structural change for that to happen. And that just isn't being seen. Obviously, Sears and JCPenney's are just getting slaughtered like none other. Amazon is up 2,000% since then. Um, and so, you're, you're just kind of seeing, I think, pretty textbook innovators' dilemma here, where the worst stores are going away. So, the industry puts the focus on the higher end, the most successful stores. But then as time rolls on, those which turn into the cream of the crop end up cutting their losers. And then they just have their best stores remaining. It just turns into this cycle over and over while the disruptive innovation just continues to take ground. And everyone is just kind of focusing on on the little pieces of news, but really just ignoring the magnitude of what's going on here. And if you think that the last 10 years weren't friendly. I have no idea how you could think that the next 10 years would be any friendlier. It's just accelerating chaos. And that, to me, is the most interesting part of the Macy's story, Mm -hmm. the closing of the stores. Because for whatever struggles Macy's has had over the past five to 10 years, one of the things that bulls have pointed to with Macy's is the way they have managed their footprint. They have historically done a good job of not overexpanding, mm-hmm. of doing a you know a certainly better than average job of bricks and mortar general retailers, mm-hmm. of maximizing revenue per square foot, and the fact that they're coming out and saying we're going to be closing dozens of stores that should yeah. that should really scare investors about Macy's more than. The laying off of employees. Yeah, and it's interesting too because, as I kind of mentioned, just with the whole innovators dilemma concept, um, it keeps on affecting higher and higher tier um, companies or brands. And within Macy's itself, they also own Bloomingdale's, which is a pretty big brand for them. And part of the store closing, Bloomingdale's isn't included there at all. But I think just a few years ago, people would have thought it would have been crazy that Macy's would be closing this many stores numbers, because they really did a good job of managing their footprint and all of that. And I think people think of that maybe towards a Bloomingdale's today. But it wouldn't surprise me if in five years, the same story um, we're talking about, just with a different part of the company or another company like that. You mentioned how Sears has gotten decimated uh, over the past decade, and it has, uh, the business and the stock. And yet, for today... If we're just taking a snapshot today, Sears up 7% because the company sold its craftsman tool business to Stanley Black & Decker. And I want to be very clear about this for anyone <laughs> listening. They sold craftsman tool, which this has been in the works. This was being talked about last fall. This, this was being seen for at least a year as a way for Sears to generate some cash, is just sell off this brand. This is a good brand for them. They sold it for $525 million, not, as you will see in some media reports today, for $900 million. Those are two very different numbers. They're getting, the $900 million number comes from uh, amount, amounts of money that were, ostensibly are going to come further down the line. $525 million is today. They get another $250 million in, I think, three years, and then variable payments for 15 years after that. So, 
I, I'm scratching my head over the enthusiasm for Sears stock today because last fall there were reports that Craftsman was going to fetch as much as two billion dollars for them. The fact yeah. that the fact that Stanley Black and Decker shares are up two percent when they just wrote the check oh, that man. they wrote I, that makes sense to me. I mean, they they got this really yeah. good brand for a steal. Yeah, and just to put things in perspective, I just looked this up. Sears has a market cap of only about one billion dollars. Right. And so this is actually a huge deal. And I know we were talking before just that so much of this deal depends on Sears being relevant right. and alive, <laughs> you right. know, in the future. Which if they can live for another three years, they get two hundred fifty million dollars. Yeah, I, I just don't see anything, one single thing that they're doing right here. These just keep on losing. At Market Foolery is our Twitter handle. You can follow us there. Question on Twitter from Justin Frenzel, who asks, Would love to hear your thoughts on El Pollo Loco. As a customer, I like the product and the stock has taken a hit. Maybe a buy? El Pollo Loco, one of one of the more enthusiastic IPOs of the last few years. I think that's I think that stock was up, I want to say it was up thirty plus percent on the opening day. Yeah. Um Maybe even more. It might have even shot up forty percent on the opening day, but it is it is since uh, fallen back to earth. And I think this is you know this this speaks to a question that uh, we well a couple of questions that we get, but certainly from the stock standpoint, I think this is a common question that we get. We get it about restaurant anything where there's a consumer experience. Right. I think this we get this type of question like I like this thing. I have. I see that the stock is down. Is this a buying opportunity? So let's just start with El Pollo Loco. When you look at this restaurant chain, and you look at the fall that the stock has had over the last couple of years, I'm assuming you think, yeah, this makes sense to me. Yeah, it does make sense to me. It really does, Chris. Um, this is a company that's seen decelerated growth. It's seen inconsistent earnings and cash flow. Um, their same store sales were were pretty good when the stock um, first went public, which is part of why um, people were so excited about it. But now it's it's down basically to next to nothing. Which part of that is just part of the restaurant industry in general right now. But they are they're proving to to be no exception. And then they still have over a hundred million in debt to pay down. And so having that much debt for a concept that's half a billion dollars or so, that's a whole lot. And so. I think we've seen all of that slowly being baked more and more into the to the price at this point. But, but I mean, just talking about experiences, all of those things are uh, items or numbers that you can't get <laughs> when you walk into a store. Um, so I think it's important to kind of put a wall in between what you perceive as a consumer and what you see in the numbers. I want to go back to something you said about what their numbers looked like going into the IPO. One of the reasons we say here at The Motley Fool, in general, I don't want to say everyone is on board with this, because there are certainly people who like to invest in IPOs. But in general, and I'm in this camp, in general, I like to see how a company does after you know at least a couple of quarters of public market experience. Mm-hmm. And one of the reasons for that is that if you're a private company gearing up to go public, you're going to do everything in your power. You're going to pull every lever you can mm-hmm. to make sure your numbers look as good as they can going into that IPO. Yeah, as you should. But you shouldn't, as you know, an individual investor, you shouldn't assume. Oh, well, this is this is how they do every quarter. No, this is how they're doing right up to the IPO. And that is why IPOs tend to underperform. Yes. <laughs> uh, 
you touched on the customer experience. This this is something you and I have gone back and forth a little bit about this uh, because you're one of the people that I follow on Twitter. What is your Twitter handle for for people interested in following you? Aaron Bush 100. Aaron Bush 100. I follow you on Twitter, and I I noticed that your customer experience at Panera Bread appears to be the exact opposite of my <laughs> customer experience because I I love Panera. I eat there a few times a week. It's great. They it's nice and easy. It's convenient. All that sort of. You seem to be having the exact opposite experience for me. But I yeah. think that, I think that goes to the point that you're making that you you can't. It's it's a data point, and it's it's obviously personal for any investor. But when you're thinking about investing in a company, you kind of got to separate that out. Yeah, the way I think about it is that personal experiences are great for coming up with ideas. But when it comes to actually pulling the trigger in any way at all, that is not nearly enough. Just because, yeah, we are one data point. And one thing that, that we have done to kind of get around that um, is just on our discussion boards, um, a lot of times for a lot of these restaurant um, concepts, we have you know, big discussions where everyone, you know, around, you know, the country or the world kind of chimes in giving their their opinions on things and that helps give a more detailed or nuanced understanding of what's really going on. But even that itself is really, really hard to decipher. But yeah. My Panera experience has not <laughs> has not been the best. But as a Panera shareholder, I, I am still hoping Are you best. a shareholder? I am a shareholder. How long have you been a shareholder? Oh man. Probably like eight years okay. or so, so a good while. So, through the Ron Shake mosh pit moment of two to three years ago. Yeah. So, I've I've been to several Paneras just through several different states, and I've probably seen at least half a dozen different styles yes. for which like they, they manage their ordering system and, and such. And so, I think I have a decently good understanding that like this one Panera that we go to maybe isn't the perfect example of all the all the Paneras that are out there. Um, but yeah, they they have a lot going on, a lot changing. Speaking of food, I've got to say a word about Green Chef, um, and this uh, this is something you need to get on, my friend, because the last time I think the last time one of the last times you were in the studio, you and David Crespin and I were talking about food, and, and uh, do you remember this? We, I do remember. We closed this. out the episode, and I was looking for like you know if someone wants to eat healthier, how should they you know what's a snack tip. Or an eating tip, and your tip was, uh, I like to eat a lot of meat, so um, you know, just just wrap it in lettuce. That was <laughs> that was your move. Nobody needs Green Chef more than you. Uh, Green Chef's USDA certified organic meal kits make it easy to cook healthy and feel great about where your food comes from. They deliver everything you need to cook amazing dinners right to your door. Organic, non-GMO ingredients. They probably have lettuce in them. In some of them, if you're Excellent. interested, if that's going to help you, um, you can go paleo, you can go vegan, you can, you know, all kinds of things. And everything is pre chopped, it's pre measured, step by step recipe instructions with photographs, which is, which is always helpful for me anyway. And uh, I said this the other day you want to impress someone, cook them a Green Chef meal because you're going to cook something. That's a little complicated, but it's easier for you, and it's just impressive for you know anyone you're looking to impress. Uh, you can choose the plan that's right for you. Like I said, vegan, paleo, gluten-free. There's no shopping. There's no planning. You can switch between menus. You can skip me- uh, weeks. You can cancel whenever you want. Get all the details at greenchef.com/fool. That's greenchef.com/fool, and you get fifty dollars off. 
Who doesn't love that? Wow. Uh, programming note, this weekend on the Motley Fool Money Radio Show, our guest is going to be David Kretzman, who's going to be reporting from the Consumer Electronics Show in Las Vegas. It's really just gotten underway in the last 24 hours or so. Has anything caught your attention so far? Um, nothing really in particular, Chris. I think it's important to recognize that about 85-90% of CES is things like internet-connected toasters and, <laughs> and then like egg cartridges and, and yes. things like that. But I mean, there there is a big lineup of companies and and CEOs who are going to be announcing. I think Intel just released a new chip for for 5G, which is kind of a step in the right direction. Fitbit announced um, a, a new step for them in software to become more social, whatever that really means. Um, so so there's so there the announcements are starting to get rolling, but not a whole lot has been announced yet. Uh, I I wrote this on Twitter last night. Um, for anyone who's on Twitter and is looking to get updates from CES, David Kretzman is a great person to follow. Um, Haley Sukiyama, who's the consumer electronics reporter for the Washington Post, also a great person to follow as well. Um, yeah, it it is interesting to see the gadgets that you just sort of shake your head at. Like, yeah. I'm not sure why I need an internet connected <laughs> toaster, but someone has gone out of their way to make one. Um, but in some ways, Intel, you know. It, I mean, you mentioned Intel. That's one of those things that it doesn't have the either the wow factor or the curiosity factor of a gadget that you've just seen for the first time. Or sure. again, not to pick on the internet-connected toaster, but come on. Um, but that's that's the type of chip that can have a much greater impact on our lives than you know any of the gadgets that you would see. Absolutely. I've been to to CES before, just just to mention briefly, and I actually find that like. Although it's kind of ironic, I find that one of the best values of CES is figuring out what's overhyped and overrated. And once you start signaling out that noise, you can find those little golden nuggets. And I believe CES has been expanding beyond just hardware, too, yes. which which is awesome. So I'm I'm sure that probably this year more than years past, we'll actually be able to find good information and really helpful advice coming out of CES. I remember our colleague Matt Argusinger coming back from CES a couple of years ago, and one of his takeaways was <laughs> about just the glut of 3D printing companies and seeing 25, 30 companies yes. all with booths lined up across from one another, and he just thought, oh my gosh, there is no way you all are going to make it. In fact, most of you are not. And the year after that, I went, and the big topic was drones. And one of the panelists, I, <laughs> one of the panel discussions I went to, one of the panelists was talking about all the great applications of drones, including drone paintball. So, that that was the the big takeaway of, of CES that year. I feel like that would be cheating. Like if you like if you <laughs> if you went out to play paintball one weekend, you're like, oh, and I brought my drone. That's uh, I don't know. That, that, I feel like if everyone has a drone at paintball, that's fair. But otherwise, yeah. no, come on. What are you doing? Thanks for being here. Yeah, thanks, Chris. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and the Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. That's going to do it for this edition of Market Foolery. The show is mixed by Dan Boyd. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you on Monday.